This is Monocle on Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. On today's program, we take to the skies to meet a designer making long-haul flights a breeze. And you may not need to reinvent the wheel, but what about a pickup truck? Designer Eve Bahar takes us through his contributions to electric vehicle manufacture. Plus, we visit a passive house in Austria. All that coming up on Monocle on Design. Kaon Design Office is a Sydney-based creative studio that has a long-standing partnership with Qantas. Led by David Kaon, the studio is a key player in the Australian Flag Carriers Project Sunrise initiative. That aims to establish an increasing number of direct, long-haul flights from Australia to the UK and the US East Coast. As part of this program, David has designed interiors for Qantas's Boeing 787 Dreamliner and is currently working on its ultra-long range Airbus A350s. Key to the A350's cabin design has been a layout with fewer seats, giving passengers more space. There's also a dedicated wellbeing zone that allows those on board plenty of room to get up and stretch. Needless to say, it's work that leaves David Kayon well-placed to talk about designing for the long haul. He joined me in the studio in London to do just that. There are several elements that are quite important to setting the scene for people to be able to fly distances like that and get off at the other end and feel comfortable and, and, and help with jet lag. Primarily, service and design go hand in hand. You know, the airline will take care of the service and, and that informs our thinking a little bit as well. On our side, we are focusing on comfort, ergonomics, lighting, and also mood, something that uh, has become more and more important in the way that I view the cabin at the moment. Rather than the individual little details, it's big picture. Does it feel like somewhere that's sort of peaceful, calming, serene, you know, as much as it can be? I know that that is going to change from cabin to cabin. Obviously, if you're in first class, it's going to be a lot more serene than if you're uh, in economy class. But they're equally important from our perspective. Setting that is one of the first elements that we look at and that, you know, informs our choices of materials in colours. We do most of our seats with a fabric rather than a leather because that helps the body breathe and stay cool and, yeah, there's a lot of elements that go into it. What about, I guess, in terms of the similarities between first class and economy? Surely there are sort of parallels, even if, you know, one is perhaps a little bit more spacious than the other. Are you finding that you're using the same materials or the same lighting? Or, or yeah, what are some of those consistent threads that run through those two spaces? Lighting is treated quite differently between the two cabins. We have a lot more control in somebody's individual lighting in a first-class cabin, there's less passengers. There's a different sort of structure to the actual cabin itself in terms of bins, etc. But with materials specifically, in our upcoming A350 aircraft for Qantas, the Project Sunrise, we have tried very hard to maintain a language across the two products, both in terms of selection of colours and finishes. There's a lot of commonality of materials anyway because it is a commercial aircraft, therefore you're relying a lot on composites, aluminiums and wools and leathers. But in terms of you know how the cabin presents and looks when you walk into it, we do want there to be that sort of consistency of feel. In the past, We've been quite different between those two cabins, and in this case, I wanted to have everything feel quite consistent across uh, across the aircraft because I'm quite aware I do it myself. I'll fly first, I'll fly business, I'll fly everything. So I think from that perspective, I, I do want to 
have this holistic vision of of the airline. I mean, I want to talk a little bit about these A350s now as well, because I think what I've found fascinating, and I know it's still a work in progress at the moment, but Mm. I know Qantas is having fewer seats on the aircraft, which I assume gives people more space. Mm. How does a airline, I guess, and maybe maybe we're straying into territory that I don't know if you can comment on, but how does an airline justify, I guess, making more room for its passengers and a better designed experience when I feel like so many airlines are are more interested in that bottom line, particularly coming off the back of the pandemic? What what are some of those discussions that you're having around that? You've got to bear in mind that Qantas didn't stray into this recklessly. There was a huge amount of background work done in terms of focus groups and market research. So they understand well that there's a demand for these flights. Some people will be into the idea, some people won't be into the idea. That's kind of a given. But the research that goes into something like this is is enormous. I think, you know, we're involved in some level from the beginning. And I think we started initial research projects in, I think, 2016, 17. So that's how long it's been going. So there's um, a lot of um, a lot of smarts behind the decision and the uh, proposal. Another key component is a well-being zone. There are sculptural wall panels, integrated stretch handles, guided on-screen exercise programs, a hydration station. I mean, this mm. sounds like a, a gym in the sky. Yeah. This is on an aircraft that's flying at hundreds of thousands of kilometres per hour through the air. Mm. How do you create a space like this mm given like all the weight restrictions you've got to have to work with, given that people are going to be moving around and there's potential turbulence. What, what are some of those design considerations that you have in those moments? Yeah, well, actually, removing seats is handy when you're struggling with weight. <laughs> um, but that was a very important wish list item that came out of that initial research I mentioned before. Passengers in economy and premium economy, we're very aware that they're limited for space. And in order to enhance their wellness during the flight, one of the key things is to give them somewhere to go, a destination to go to, rather than be overly specific with particular stretches or or that. The research that um, was done by the Charles Perkins Centre, which is um, Qantas's research partner in this project, the key thing was, you know, if people get up out of their seat and move, then that will help with things like DVT and, and, and the body cycle. Then that offering, once they get there, is focused around hydration and body movement, stretching and, and things that benefit you rather than, you know, a bar or something like that. So that proposal of wellness, something that's at the back of the cabin rather than that's something that's at the front where they do have the benefit of space was a very important factor in, in planning the aircraft going forward. You're working in these really tight constraints when you're working on these aircraft projects. How does it translate to the other work that you do in your studio? Like when you get more freedom, do you find yourself still drawing on these experiences or how, how does that set you up as a, as a practice? The kind of design work that we do in aviation, you know, it is quite niche, but it's still technical design work. So it's still a big focus on detail. There's still a big focus on understanding materials and and forms and shapes. And I guess it kind of just, it's all hand in hand with the other work that we do. Some of the other work, it's quite wide ranging, the projects that we've been doing. There's projects in other forms of transportation, cars and and the like. And then there's furniture that can span anywhere between, you know, very comfortable, almost quite basic home furnishings to office furnishings. And, And I guess that field of industrial design is quite, it's a bit like a Swiss army knife. There's a set of I guess, skills or a process that you can target towards different problems or different areas. So the aerospace thing is definitely one of my favourites. It is a a real great opportunity to be able to work in in a field that's so 
advanced in many ways. You alluded to, you know, constraints, and there are a lot. Safety is really important, and we often have to design solutions around considerations of safety. So over the years, we've developed our process, which is, you know, very much about understanding the boundaries that we are working in between. And within those boundaries, you know, being very focused on things like emotion and and materiality and and detail and, and forms. It's one of the key things that we discuss with our clients when we're looking at, you know, something that we've designed or proposing something. It is how does that feel? How am I going to feel in there? Because, you know, flying can be quite emotive. I think your senses are heightened when you're up there. It, you know, some people have fear of flying or, or and, and some people are a little bit uncomfortable. It's not a natural place to be for a human being. In that sense, yeah, emotion is, is a key factor that we like to consider. My thanks to David Kay on there. California-based electric vehicle manufacturer Tello has set their sights on reinterpreting the classic US pickup truck. And to do so, the young brand has tapped Swiss designer Yves Bahar to give its vehicle a distinctive look that matches its technical credentials. The result is a compact four-door truck that is just over 380 centimetres long. That's about the same size as a three-door Mini Cooper. The interior is roomy enough to fit five passengers and the truck bed can be expanded into the back seat through a modular mid-partition. To find out more about the EV, which is currently available for pre-order, Eve dropped into our London studio to talk with Monocle's Grace Charlton. Designing um, uh, an EV vehicle today, you can take two different approaches. One approach, which is use existing platforms, which is essentially what European car manufacturers are doing. And you get, for a small car, you get very limited performance out of that. Most small uh, European EV cars don't go very far, don't go very fast, are not high performance. But what was very exciting in the early stage of Tello is that on the team, we have Forrest, a co-founder who was battery expert, one of the first employees at Tesla. So Tello developed a unique, very compact, high-density way to assemble batteries. That allows us to pack a lot of batteries very efficiently in the base of the vehicle. It's actually called the skateboard. If we combine excellent battery technology and density as well as uh, security safety features, that creates a completely new platform that enables not only the pickup truck we designed, but any other small-scale EV car and gives us really incredible performance with that little truck, the Tello truck. You can tow a a big uh, Airstream. And in terms of the look of it, was any of the design informed by functionality? Well, all of it is informed by functionality, but what I I always look for in a lot of the um, designs that we do, a lot of the first, is to create a very strong identity from the get-go. And the identity is based on a very unique car layout that we're able to achieve because of our technology. And because we're not following existing platforms, we are able to pack a four-door, five-seater vehicle and a truck bed. Both the truck bed and the interior are the same size of the Toyota Tacoma, best-selling car in the U.S., And we're able to do that at two-thirds size of um, Tacoma. So essentially, our four-door pickup truck with all of that capacity 
is the same size as a two-door Mini SE, 152 inches in length. Is there a temptation, do you think, to keep getting bigger and bigger? Or do you think at some point you need to stop and maybe keep it more compact? For us, there is clearly a need for city dwellers, uh, people who work in cities, for a smaller pickup truck. In fact, the pickup truck of choice in the U.S. in the 80s and 90s was the Ford Ranger, a tiny pickup truck. And today, the best-selling pickup truck is the Ford 150, which is humongous. I mean, they're dangerous. They're just too big in the cities and garages, etc. But the crazy statistic is light-duty trucks, as pickup trucks are called, represent 10.5% of all carbon emissions in the U.S. All carbon emissions, including household, electric grid, making a difference with the best-selling vehicle type makes a double-digit difference, but possibly in the carbon output in the U.S. One big factor, why did they become this big? It's because of an EPA rule. It wasn't a consumer choice. It's the only choice that car companies in the U.S. felt they had because essentially the EPA rule a little more than 10 years ago allowed car manufacturers to build less efficient engines if their cars were bigger. So essentially they built big cars so they could put inefficient engines in them in order to match the EPA regulations, which is crazy because it should have been the other way around. It's a lifestyle that is being sold uh, as a luxury by car companies who essentially are not able to find new platforms for their cars that will make them more efficient and more space efficient as well, right? We're proving that you can get more interior space, more functional space in a very small size vehicle. We're doing something that large car companies are not willing to do, which is to change their platforms. That is a costly endeavor for them. But a third generation EV company like us can start from scratch and actually do it very efficiently from a capital standpoint. For me, like a pickup truck is more associated with gas-guzzling joy of petrol-powered large vehicles down the highway. The sort of consumer that you might associate with a pickup truck is not one that you'd market an EV to. So I was wondering, how do you make it appeal to consumers? With First, you have an opportunity to establish the hopes and dreams of a product, its functionality, its aesthetic, its appeal, and to change people's minds. Design really accelerates the adoption of new ideas, and when the design is attractive in every way, whether it's functional, the fact that we have so much trunk capacity, the fact that you can put a four-by-eight sheet of plywood in the truck bed with a mid-gate coming down, the mid-gate is the part that separates the cabin from from the truck bed. While the gate is up, that is absolutely incredible, and it's a kind of performance that even the full-size pickup trucks don't have. But what we have found since we presented the vehicle and took pre-orders, people are looking for that. For example, my garage in San Francisco, I can put one large pickup truck in it, or I can put four Tellos inside that garage. It has a lot of appeal. We started by sort of talking about it for cities. We actually got a lot of orders from Texas, believe it or not. If you show something attractive, both a new crowd, but also an existing crowd of uh, pickup truck uh, owners, maybe a significant amount of them, 
will start to open up in other minds about a vehicle that's more efficient, that's not all about sort of macho, aggressive cues, one that has, I would say, environmental credentials that we're all starting to think about. For an industrial designer and integrated design team like my team at Fuse Project, designing a vehicle and being able to show it, it's something new for us and so exciting. I mean, I used to design cars when I was in school at Art Center College of Design, which is actually quite well known for transportation design. To be able to do that and present it to the world in an industry that tends to have a mentality, a little bit, as as I call it, not invented here, everything needs to be internal, has been so exciting. And being able to show a platform that is so different and truly takes advantage of EV technology, rather than replicating the same shape and the same functionality that you have in a gasoline car and just putting a electric batteries in it, which is mostly what, honestly, we have seen from European car manufacturers. That's the fundamental work of design, to rethink from the ground up, from the inside out, how a new technology can enable a completely different experience. That's the job at hand, and we're moving forward with it. My thanks to Eve Bahar in conversation with Monocle's Grace Charlton. For more on the Tello, pick up a copy of Monocle's 2024 edition of The Forecast. This forward-looking publication is available on all good newsstands now. Passive House is a low-energy building design that started life in Germany in the early 1990s. The concept then spread across the border to Austria, where the first Passive House was built in 1999. But it's not the only energy-efficient building type making waves across the German-speaking world. For proof, Monocle's Alexei Koryalov spoke to an architecture firm that has developed its own concept of sustainable building. Plus, he also spoke to an Austrian passive house pioneer. I'm standing next to the Danube Canal in the very heart of Vienna. And in front of me is a high-rise office building owned by Austria's second biggest bank, Raiffeisen. It's not much to look at. It's 22 storeys high, all glass and steel, and it looks like all the other office buildings around. But 10 years ago, when it was first opened, it made international headlines because at the time, and for a while afterwards, it was the world's tallest building built to the passive house standard. You would know it from looking at it, though, and that neatly illustrates the trouble with passive houses. You just can't tell if you're looking at one. And so in 2019, one Austrian passive house enthusiast decided to right this wrong. Hello, I'm Günther Lang. I'm uh, working for passive house for very energy efficient buildings. 20 years before, construction engineer Günther Lang had built Austria's first fully certified passive house. And now he had an idea. He called it Passaton. Passaton, the name, is a combination of passive house and marathon. So that was the first idea of the concept, to show people buildings in in this quality, because you cannot see from outside if that is a very energy efficient building or not. You see only the architecture. While running or cycling? We primarily focused on on cycling, but it's it's free for everyone Mm. if it will do it with a bike or with with his own legs. And I have to say the term passive house is a bit confusing because there are other types of environmentally friendly buildings. So tell me, what is a passive house? Yeah, let me translate it very simple. Passive house is a building. It's not a question if it's a single family house, a multifamily house, an office building, a school building, 
where you feel well in summer as in winter without a conventional heating or cooling system. Everyone knows what a hair dryer is. If you take a hair dryer to heat a single family house, if it is built in a passive house standard, then you can overheat this house. So that shall show how well insulated mm. such a building is. So, so it's, it's more about insulation and not where the energy comes from, right? Yeah, it's primarily a question of the well-done quality of not only the insulation as well, the windows, the glass, the air tightness. And if all is well done, then the technical equipment can be much smaller and much easier. So it's a low-tech concept and not a high-tech concept, which is often understanding. So it's simple. Insulate well and you won't need to worry about heating. But this comes with limitations. Insulation materials can be expensive and retrofitting an older building to a passive house design more expensive still. Austrian architects Baumschlager Eberle have a different solution. Their concept is called 2226, a reference to the room temperatures they find most comfortable for the human body. The basic idea behind it is that instead of changing a building's hardware, that is, adding layers of insulation or complex ventilation systems, you should simply change its software. Dietmar Eberle. How did I come to it? It was very easy. I was born in a small village in the mountains. And there, there is a long tradition, according to the poorness of these areas, that you have to use the things you have in the most efficient way. You have sunlight, you have rain, you have wind, you have fresh air and things like this. And then you will find out in the end that you don't need a lot of additional things. And so 2226 is a strategy to reduce the amount of energy because we believe very much the best energy is the one you don't need. It's kind of similar to the concept of passive house, no? Yes, but there's one big difference. In passive house, you need quite a lot of additional technology. And in 2226, we replace all traditional technology, which means pipes and ventilators, uh, heaters and things like this, by using software. And this software that you talk about, this yes. is proprietary software that's owned by yeah. the company. Okay, I can tell you very simple. We use uh, sensors in every room. Sensors for these things which determine your well-being a lot. It's temperature, it's the quality of air, it's carbon dioxide, and it's uh, humidity. We measure this in a time frame of 1 minute 30 seconds. Because what's happening in the room is very much determined, not so much by the outside situation, but much more by what's happening in the rooms. People, when they use a room, they have an impact on the room in three different ways. First of all, people are very nicely heaters. Second, they waste the air, they pollute the air by carbon dioxide. And third, they lose a certain humidity, uh, about 1 to 1.5 liters within 24 hours. And so these traces, that's what we measure. And based on these traces, the building has to react. What can the building do? The building can open and close itself 
And secondly, it can switch on the light or switch off the light. And that's all. We don't need more. It's about temperature, it's about air quality, about carbon dioxide and humidity. So in physical terms, when you fulfill these ranges of comfort, you have quite a comfortable uh, atmosphere. Passive House and 2226 are just two of many kinds of energy-efficient building designs. What marks them out, however, is that their architectural properties and the source of whatever little energy they need are irrelevant. At a time when Austria is still heavily dependent on Russian gas, that is important. But as Austrian passive house pioneer Günther Lang says, You can also heat with oil, but it makes absolutely no sense and it's absolutely stupid if you make it with oil or with natural gas. So the concept is if you have a very reduced energy demand, this minimum energy demand uh, can be produced by 100% renewable energy. So if the buildings can have or use their own produced energy, that will be the best way. For Monaco in Vienna, I'm Alexei Korolev. Mahdi Amjad is the Iraqi-born founder and executive chairman of Emirati property developer Omniat. Since it was established in 2005, Omniat has not only observed the development boom in Dubai, but actively participated in it under Mahdi's leadership. Here, he talks to Monocle's Ed Stocker about the importance of picking the right designer to work with. Mahdi began by talking about his early recollections of Dubai. I grew up in Dubai seeing the phenomenal growth of the city and, and the evolution of the city from a, a much smaller city back in 91 when I moved into Dubai. By 2004, the city is flourishing and growing. With all the new architecture and all the new buildings that Dubai has brought to, to the city, Emirates Towers, Burj Khalifa, Jumeirah Beach Hotel, these were beautiful architecture pieces that started attracting international community. So it was a quite a nice opportunity to be able to uh, participate and be inspired by that. And when the city said, we will open up to the international community and allow foreign investment and foreign ownership for real estate, that was a sparking moment. And for me, I clearly saw the trajectory of possibilities. And how was it in, in 2008? Because you didn't start so long before there was a little bit dip here. Was it fine for you? Was that a difficult period? In 2004, when we acquired the assets, acquired lands in these prime locations of downtown Dubai, the main challenge then was, what type of developer are we? What are we going to do? And, and, and the formation and creation of the vision of Omniat was the very important part. I went around the world trying to actually understand and envision the identity of this new company that we're trying to create. I remember I actually spent a lot of time in London and uh, went uh, into bookstores in London trying to actually study architecture and looking at the architecture around the world and what the architecture is looking like and how the global trending is. And I came back with, uh, with a very clear impression that I want to create the most unique properties. I've established a list of top architects of the world that I would like to do business with and uh, on top of my list was uh, people like Foston Partners, uh, Richard Rogers, uh, Zaha Hadid, Renzo Piano, Santiago Caltrava, and Ram Kulhaus. This was the six. 
I came back in and, and, and 2005 and discussed with my management team that I said, we won't be about the tallest or the biggest. Uh, we are a private firm. We'll be a boutique firm. And we'll work with the, some of the best designers around the world to actually make this happen. I want to know, especially given it was your first project here, you know, you got Zaha Hadid. When you were a relatively young company, you know, how did you do that? Was it easy to get, you know, this superstar architect to come and do her first venture in Dubai? You know, was she not like, who are you? Why are you asking me to do this? Nothing is easy with Zaha Hadid, if you know Zaha Hadid. <laughs> but... It was a real journey. It was a very unique journey. I mean, imagine in 2005, we are a startup company, and, and I go and say to this phenomenal global architect, why don't you come and design something in this middle of desert? Believe that it will be something special. I have to give it to, to the beautiful architects, she'll work. I did, by the way, out of the six, I end up working with the four of the architects. Well, I was going to ask you, actually. So tell me who's, who you've struck off your list and who you've still got to get. So out of the six, I uh, worked with Zaha Hadid first, and then Foster and Partners, then Richard Rogers. I did work as well with Ram Kulhaus. You still got Renzo Piano? I still have Renzo Piano to, to convince. Yeah. I wouldn't say convince. It was more about finding the right project for the right architect and the right product for the right architect. I'm yet, yet to make that matchmaking process. <laughs> and I think that's a, that's a very important part of the journey. It was about really understanding. For me, it was from the beginning when the exercise that we did with Zaha Hadid, uh, it was then you learn how every architect have their own language. And you need to, as a developer, as a, as a curator of this experience, you need to be very clear about what is your vision for the product you're trying to create? Who is your target audience? And which architect? That was Monocle's Ed Stocker talking to Mali Amjad. That offering. For more on Omniat, pick up a copy of Monocle's The Entrepreneurs. This special edition magazine is on all good newsstands now. And that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra. That airs on Thursdays. And if you enjoy print, then do pick up a copy of Monocle magazine as well. It's on all good newsstands now. Today's episode was produced and edited by Maylee Evans. I'm Nick Manise, and you can reach me on nm at monocle.com. Thanks for listening.